Unprepared to engage Mormon missionaries when they knock on your door? Perhaps the book Mormonism 101 will help. Mormonism 101, published by Baker Book. Available at your favorite Christian bookstore. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. I hope you're having a very pleasant Friday. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. With me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We continue our look at a Gospel Topics essay titled Becoming Like God that was posted on LDS.org, the official website of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, on February 24th, 2014. We left off yesterday looking at a paragraph in the essay that cites a number of Bible verses that Mormons are led to believe support the notion that mortal men can become gods in the next life. And as we pointed out so far, many of these verses that Mormons like to use, if you look at the context, they are not really saying what Mormons assume them to be saying. Today we continue looking at this paragraph at at least three more Bible verses, and let's see once again, are these verses really good sources to support the Mormon notion that mortal men can become deities in the next life? The first one, Eric, that we're going to deal with is a quote from the Apostle Paul. Yeah, it says the Apostle Paul taught that we are, quote, the offspring of God, end quote, and emphasize that as such, quote, we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, end quote. Well, first of all, when it says the Apostle Paul taught that we are the offspring of God, eh, that may be true to a certain extent, but really what Paul was doing in that passage from the book of Acts in chapter 17, verse 9, is he was citing a pagan poet by the name of Eratus, who had written a poem that was dedicated to Zeus called the Phenomena. Now let me read it to you in context. This is what Paul was citing. From Zeus let us begin, him do we mortals never have unnamed. Full of Zeus are all the streets and all the marketplaces of men. Full is the sea and the havens thereof. Always we all have need of Zeus, for we are also his offspring." And he, in his kindness unto men, giveth favorable signs and wakeneth the people to work, reminding them of livelihood. That's the context of the phrase that Paul cites. Do you think for a minute that Paul really believed that we are really the offspring of Zeus? If not, what was Paul trying to do in that passage? I think it's pretty clear. He was trying to use an understanding that his Greek audience had to try to teach them a biblical principle. He's not saying that we are literally the offspring of Zeus or even the offspring of Heavenly Father because, one, the Greeks didn't even believe that. They didn't hold to that position. What this is saying in its context is that we are under the auspices of Zeus in a Greek mindset. So to assume that that is saying that we are the literal offspring of God is, again, I think, reading something into what 
Paul was saying that he really wasn't trying to say at all. Yeah, and if you notice that in that passage in Acts chapter 17, he never quotes from the Old Testament which he normally would have done when he went to go talk to the Jewish leadership at the synagogues. Why doesn't he quote the Old Testament? Because the people to whom he was speaking didn't believe in it. They didn't believe in the scriptures. And so, therefore, he used that as a jumping off stone so he could make his point. It's kind of like when we use the Book of Mormon when we are witnessing to Latter-day Saints. We have to remind them, because we've been challenged on this, why are you quoting the Book of Mormon? You don't believe the Book of Mormon. My response to that question is, no, but you do. So I'm using something you're familiar with to try and teach you a biblical principle. I think Paul is doing the same thing in Acts chapter 17. So when it uses this phrase that we are the offspring of God, I think the Mormons need to be careful and not read something into that, which is certainly much more than what Paul meant when he cited Eratus from the poem Phenomena. And in that same sentence where it cites, we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is a citation from Romans chapter 8. Now, we've talked about this idea of what does the Bible mean when it talks about humans being the children of God. And we demonstrated that when that phrase is used, it's speaking of believers who have put their faith in Christ. We become sons by adoption. Of course, Mormons believe every single human being is a literal child of God. So if you're going to hold to that premise, what becomes problematic in citing Romans 8.16, Eric? Well, the problem is, is that if everybody's a child of God and it says we're, we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, that means every person ever born is going to be a co-heir with Christ. And then if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, If you're going to take that literally, then everybody who's ever been born on the earth is going to be exalted as a god. In other words, you would have a form of universalism that not even Mormonism teaches today. This is why you have to be careful about using verses like this. You can't just give it an arbitrary meaning. We have to go back and try to figure out as best we can what did the author mean when the author wrote this. And in this case, it would be the Apostle Paul, who in fact is writing to Christians in Rome. This is why he can say, we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God. He's speaking to those who have been adopted into the family of God by their faith in what Christ did for them. Early early in the week, we did quote from John chapter 1. I want to just do it again because I think it's so powerful. Verses 12 and 13, it says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And again, the emphasis, folks, is you've got to look at the context. You can't just arbitrarily give a meaning to a verse that certainly the author never intended. The next portion of the essay says this, The book of Revelation contains a promise from Jesus Christ that, quote, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne, end quote. Now, here's what's interesting about Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. If you have an LDS version of the King James Bible, the one that the Mormon church prints and produces, It has a subheading under chapter 3 where it says this, 
He who overcomes will retain his name in the book of life, reach Godhood, and be with Jesus as he is with the Father. They're getting this from verse 21, as Eric just cited, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Where does it say you're going to receive godhood in that passage? It doesn't. I don't see anywhere no. where it's implying godhood. It says that we will reign with him in another portion of Scripture, certainly, but it doesn't say that we are going to ontologically become a God in the next life, as Mormons believe they will become gods. And the only way that you can get that interpretation is if you have a presupposition, as a Mormon would, that you will someday become a god if you do everything you're supposed to do. But that verse certainly isn't explaining that. The next paragraph, I think, is very telling. What does it say there? It says, these passages can be interpreted in different ways. No kidding. Now, why would they say that? I don't think they're trying to give the impression that another interpretation is going to be correct, but at least the author of this essay, how many authors there are, we don't know, because every one of these Gospel Topics essays are anonymous. We know this. They are not written by general authorities. They are written by scholars in the Mormon Church, even though the Church has backed what these essays are saying. That when the author or author says these passages can be interpreted in different ways, yes, we acknowledge that there are some aspects of these verses that can be understood differently. But one thing is clear, folks, you cannot, let me repeat, you cannot take the interpretation of the Mormon church and make those interpretations square with other verses in the Bible. You just cannot do that. Stated a little differently, Bill, what you just said is, yes, you can interpret it in many ways, but only one can be the correct way. And what's the most important factor is what the author originally wrote and meant. That's what we need to figure out, not what your presupposition says today. The essay goes on and says, Yet by viewing them through the clarifying lens of revelations received by Joseph Smith, Latter-day Saints see these scriptures as straightforward expressions of humanity's divine nature and potential. Many other Christians read the same passages far more metaphorically because they experience the Bible through the lens of doctrinal interpretations that developed over time after the period described in the New Testament. Now that is a telling statement. Did you catch what was in this paragraph, folks? It says, yet by viewing them through the clarifying lens of revelations received by Joseph Smith... Latter-day Saints see these scriptures as straightforward expressions of humanity's divine nature and potential. Notice, they can't use the Bible to interpret the Bible. They have to go through what they call the clarifying lens of revelations received by Joseph Smith. This is why I feel that that last portion of this paragraph is really kind of hypocritical, because they want to make it sound like what we believe, though they believe it's incorrect, comes how? Through the lens of doctrinal interpretations that developed over time after the period described in the New Testament. Well, isn't that exactly what Joseph Smith did? He comes after the period described in the New Testament. Uh, but the difference is that we have been tainted by the great apostasy. We lost all the authority. And Joseph Smith, this is not a surprise to any of our regular listeners, Joseph Smith is the main impetus for this entire religion. Listen to what the Church News said in an article dated December 22, 2007. He, Joseph Smith, received 
restore to the earth a correct understanding of the nature of the deity and gospel of Christ, correcting errors that had become embedded in the consciousness of mankind through centuries of apostasy and the resulting corruption of doctrine. So they automatically assume that Joseph Smith had to restore the truth back to the earth, and because they hold on to that presupposition, they feel much more safe in trusting the words of Joseph Smith, even though, folks, Joseph Smith goes completely against the grain of what the New Testament is telling us, what the Old Testament is telling us, because context really doesn't matter with most Latter-day Saints. The Bible really doesn't matter to most Latter-day Saints because they look at their theology through what this essay calls the clarifying lens of revelations received by Joseph Smith. Are you going to go by the context and let the Bible explain the Bible? Are you going to discard that and go by what Joseph Smith tells you? Now we know 15 million plus Latter-day Saints are doing the latter. They're interpreting the Bible according to what they think Joseph Smith said. Is that really safe? Because if he is, in fact, a false prophet, then that means you are following the guidance of a person who certainly does not have the blessing of God to interpret his word. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.